2: Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
1: Hey, it's Kramer. To keep with my mission to teach you how to think about the markets like a pro... I want to tell you about another CNBC podcast, a show where I spend my mornings squawk on the street. Every day, my co-anchors, David Faber, Carl Quintanilla, and I bring you the opening bell and some of the biggest names in business and politics. Right now, I'm sharing with you a full episode to give you a preview. But don't forget, subscribe to the Squawk on the Street podcast.
3: Booyah! Market-moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street.
4: Good morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Sarah Eisen and Mike Santoli. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures. We start trading, of course, a half hour from now here at the New York Stock Exchange. You can see we are set up for what appears to be a lower open for the major averages. Our roadmap this morning does start with, well, fueling fears of a nearing recession. Yep, stocks, as you saw it, are set to open a bit lower. This after key yield curve inversions.
5: Plus, Tiffany's next quarter, the luxury retailer with an earnings beat, but revenues did fall short, shares sinking ahead of the opening bell.
4: And Peloton is getting set for its public debut, the high-end fitness company revealing growing sales but widening losses ahead of its initial public offering. As we've already said twice now, stocks are set to open lower on worries about global growth and, of course, the risk of recession. Investors paying close attention to that yield curve and its inversions of the 2 and 10 in particular, as well as trade tensions between the U.S. and China. About an hour ago or so, we got a presidential tweet, quote, so interesting to read and see all of the free and interesting advice I'm getting on China from people who have tried to handle it before and failed miserably. In fact, they got taken to the cleaners. We're doing very well with China. This has never happened to them before. But this, I assume, being a reference, of course, to the large tariffs that are in place that are set to go up September 1 and then December 15, uh, and the overall war. But there's been some press recently that sort of echoed some things that I was hearing and shared on Monday, which is the idea that the Chinese have pulled back to some extent from trying to really see if they can engineer some sort of deal at this point. It's always difficult to know based on who you speak to. I rely, as you might expect, on more of the people who are doing business over there and talking to the Chinese leadership than talking directly to them, whether or not you could believe them anyway. But the line has been that they would like some time to pass. For those to real those who are in opposition to realize the interdependence of these two economies, and perhaps they would take a step back. That is being echoed in other reports this morning. Perhaps contributing, well, then you've got the Chinese currency down. I think 08, right, Sarah is the yeah, lowest we've seen since 2008. They,
5: well, yeah, but they made it actually stronger than than expected last night. So that was actually taken as a good thing. It's yields. I mean, that's the story. It's bonds that are that are front and center right now. Whether it's Trying to figure out, as we all are, what the next step is, what the Chinese and what the U.S. side are doing on the trade war, whether it's the impact that's going to have on the economy, on earnings, which are seen grinding to a halt. Or whether it's just the enormous central bank stimulus we're preparing from, from every single corner of the globe, we're continuing to see this pressure on yields. The 10 year yield is below 150. We've got a number of inversions going back to May 2007, March 2007. We now have the three month, 30 year inverted. Uh, you can debate what that actually means, but clearly equities are taking a cue from that. Yesterday, Mike, you know, we saw that sell off. Banks were the worst performers. Treasury yields in the driver's
6: seat. Without a doubt. I mean, it still remains, uh, the stocks still remain within that gravitational pull of, of yields. The entire mature, the curve from one month out is below 2%. So I think the absolute levels matter uh, a lot, too. Uh, I think one of the things the markets are dealing with is the fact that the lead up to an actual recession, however long that lead up is, looks a lot like a false alarm. It looks a lot like a recession scare globally than we got in 2011 and 16 and, and all the rest of it. So it's hard to distinguish between it. And so if the, if the trade standoff is kind of, you know, at a standstill um, and we have to consider this just part of the backdrop and emerging market currencies continue to fall, it just ha- it has that sense out there. Uh, that activity is grinding slower. Well, Mike, you know how the
4: rest of this day is going to go. We're yeah. going to discuss a 48, 49 now basis point sure. spread in the 2 and 10 year. And almost all of our guests are going to say it doesn't mean anything. Sure. Uh, it is simply a sign of the fact that you cannot get a yield anywhere in the world and that the money has to find a home at least with
6: a 1 in front of it. And that is true to a degree. And I think maybe it's important to keep two separate thoughts in mind at the same time. Well, I'm not capable is, of doing that. It's sorry. not meaningless, but it doesn't mean everything. I think that's the way to think about it. So there is—I mean, if you go back to the mid-2000s, people were trying to write off the inversion then, too. They said there was a global savings glut, and that was suppressing yields on the long end, right? Of course, Um, we didn't have negative yields. I mean, the bond now was negative. What's different now is, in a way—I mean, the Fed's no longer tightening to to, to steepen the curve, so they're going to be— in theory, move against uh, this inversion direction. Let's, let's see if it holds true. Let's see what we get from our guests here, right?
5: Yeah. 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 Joining us at Post 9, Deutsche Bank Chief International Strategist Alan Ruskin and Invesco Global Market Strategist Brian Lovett. How are you explaining, Alan, the yield curve inversions across the curve to your clients?
7: No, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head to some extent. I think the global backdrop is usually bullish. I think there's just a rush for yield. I think people ultimately think that most central banks are going down to zero. Uh, some are already uh, negative. Uh, the Fed is perceived in the longer term, I think, as potentially going down to zero as well. That's not an awful lot of stimulus uh, in the package there. So I think people are just looking for duration and looking for yield, and it's a, it's a global phenomenon.
1: I am not going to be one of the guests that David predicted he would have on the show today. It's an ominous sign. and. Cycles end with policy mistakes and inversions of yield curves. Now, just because the yield curve has inverted four to five basis points doesn't mean that this cycle has to necessarily end, but what it does mean is we need greater clarity on policy. Now, the usual cycles end, to Michael's point, with the Fed raising short-term interest rates above the 10-year. This time is different. The Fed is in an easing cycle, but as long as the uncertainty persists around trade, and as long as business sentiment, business investment, new orders all slow the ten years gonna go along with that so what do we need here we need the fed to cut interest rates further and we need clarity from the administration it doesn't mean we need a trade deal tomorrow But we can't keep going on with businesses not understanding the rules of the game, because if businesses don't understand the rules of the game, it's very hard to put investment into place. And without investment into place, growth slows and yields go first. We're seeing that.
4: So are those the policy mistakes you're referring to, or are you expecting further mistakes?
1: No, these are the policy mistakes that I'm referring to. I mean, look, the Fed made a policy mistake last year raising interest rates three times in what was still a largely slow growth, disinflationary world. They're backing off of that mistake. The administration regardless of what they want the ultimate outcome to be, needs to at least provide some clarity to the market. So protectionism, we all know, leads to inefficient economic outcomes, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily recessionary. It's when there's uncertainty that persists for a long time where you could really end up with a strong dollar, weaker earnings and, dare we say, even a recession. I don't think we're going to go there in election year. I actually think the administration is going to work to try and put a bottom in here and try to get rates back up again. But the risks are rising to this cycle.
6: I mean, bonds have been uh, such an amazing performer, um, uh, Alan. I I guess you have to wonder if just mechanically uh, people are going to say that, that we've had an overshoot to the downside in yields and that positioning is going to get so extreme in that area that if for no other reason that everybody who's likely to buy has bought uh, might back off for a while. Is there any any hint of that?
7: There's potentially some truth. What I tend to like to look for is the idea that there's some self-corrective mechanism in place. So, for example, bond yields have come off so sharply by, you know, call it say, you know, more than 150 basis points. That's equivalent to net stimulus from the Fed of twice that, roughly like a 300 basis point cut from the Federal Reserve. That should feed through to the economy. That stimulus in terms of the economy taking hold and growth taking hold should then feed back onto bond yields, and you know, bond yields should back up. The problem I think you're finding right now is that the bond stimulus is not really feeding through in a particularly meaningful way into the sectors that it should do. So you look in housing, you look at for example the MBA house purchase data today, still a little bit weakness. Um, You look at the refi numbers. Yes, they've spiked, but they don't seem to be spiking into the netherland that we've seen before when bond yields hit new lows. So I'm concerned that you're not actually getting the refi feeding through to the consumer. There are a lot of things there that suggest that there's not the same traction uh, that you're getting from the bond yield side onto the economy.
5: And on the stock market, I mean, CNBC running a big headline that the S&P dividend yield is now below the... It's now above the 30-year Treasury right. yield for the first time since March 2009. That was during the depths of recession. Right. I don't know whether that's bullish or bearish for stocks.
1: Well, I mean, look, we you're going to need a catalyst for this trade right now that we're in to, to change. And I liken it to what we saw in 2016. I keep coming back to that because throws of a policy mistake, stronger dollar, tighter financial conditions. And at that point, the Fed backed off equities looked very attractive um, compared to bonds. Bond yields backed back up. People were intrigued by the dividends in equities. So I think we can get back to an early 2016 environment. But again, to come back to my point, we're going to need to know the rules of the game. Yeah, but
4: you also said you think the administration has to work to get rates higher. I heard you say that, They've right? Work to well, get... We've got a president who tweets every week that he wants
1: rates to come down 100 basis points. Well, I think we need to be clear about which rates. So I agree with you, David, that the short rates, given the deflationary impulses on the economy right now and the strength in the dollar need to come down. Okay. The, um, you know, what what you would see if you had greater clarity on trade and better economic activity would be 10-year rates backing back up. So you would steepen the yield curve through policy on the front end, clarity on the long end.
5: Finally, Alan, you know, we're at end of the month. We expected all this pension fund rebalancing, given the outperformance of bonds, not quite seeing it right now. Is there any reason to think September, October is going to be different from what we saw from in August?
7: Not really. I think actually when you look at September and October and you look at the kind of events that are coming up, uh, the Brexit side the tariffs that we're likely to have implemented at at the end of this month, the beginning of next month. Um, That clarity that we're looking for uh, in terms of U.S.-China is not likely to be there. Hong Kong lurks in the shadows. So I think you've got enough global events that are essentially going to keep this thing rolling in terms of global yields generally suppressed, and I think therefore suppressing U.S. yields.
5: Alan and Brian, thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you.
4: When we come back, Peloton files to go public, despite what has been, of course, this recent market volatility. We're going to take a closer look at this fitness bicycle maker. Well, it's a lot more than that, isn't it? And its plans, of course, to go public. Here's one more look at futures. We're going to get started with trading here about uh, 18 or so minutes from now. You can see we are set up for a slightly lower open. We are off the lows uh, at least this point on the futures. More Squawk on the Street straight ahead.
8: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash card.
2: Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
4: Peloton has filed to go public, the move coming in what has been an eventful year for IPOs. Of course, Beyond Meat, which we love to speak about here, has led the top performers up more than 500 percent since it debuted back in May. And we've had a couple of others. Uh, This thing called Uber didn't do particularly well. Lyft, maybe not quite as well as it had hoped. Leslie Pickers here at Post 9, though, regarding the details on the Peloton IPO. Not a surprise to get this, Oh yeah, uh, but an important company and probably a very well-followed or closely-followed IPO to come.
9: Definitely. They had filed confidentially back in June, but now, of course, we know you know what the contents of that 200-page uh, prospectus is, and investors are already starting to assess the fitness of Peloton as a public company. Top-line growth doubling in the year through June, although losses quadrupled over that same period. Uh, digging deeper into the financials, though, Peloton makes the bulk of its revenue from selling fitness products. They don't break out how much comes from the Bike versus the treadmill. Other than to say, quote, a significant majority comes from the bike. The treadmill was launched just last year, though. About one fifth of Peloton's revenue comes from selling thirty-nine dollar a month subscriptions that allow users to tap into their live or on-demand workout classes from home. Peloton says they have about half a half a. Uh, million subscribers with triple the number of members these key metrics will all be considered by investors as they model out a price that they're willing to pay for peloton shares in a debut that could come as soon as next month but peloton's vertical integration makes it a little harder to know right now at least what kind of multiple it could achieve they say on page three of their prospectus that they're a technology media software product experience fitness design retail apparel and logistics company CEO John Foley says in a letter in the prospectus that the decision to be a company that does all of those things was, quote, against prevailing conventional wisdom met by countless investor conference rooms full of very smart skeptics. Its private investors no longer appear too skeptical. Peloton was valued at $4 billion and is reportedly seeking twice that valuation in the IPO. Now, it's worth noting, guys, Comcast, the parent company of CNBC, is an investor in Peloton.
4: People, uh, I would think, Leslie, are more likely to value at a higher multiple A subscription model Mm -hmm. than one that is selling expensive bicycles. Certainly. Uh, It's only 20% right now, but I would assume that they are going to make the case that it will become a larger and larger percentage of their revenues Mm -hmm. and obviously... The recurring nature of that is something you may be willing to pay a higher multiple for.
9: Certainly, and it's—I mean, obviously, it makes sense that once you buy the product, then you will buy the subscription service on top of that product. One thing I did find really interesting, though, is that gross margins for both the uh, products as well as the services, the subscription, um, were almost equivalent—about 43% for each of those in 2019. Now that's changed over time; it's gone up um, for the product for the subscription. Uh, but I was surprised to see that they were pretty equivalent. I think a lot of that does. Have to do with this idea that the company is vertically integrated and then that they do kind of control the entire end to end experience and so they don't have to outsource, um, you know, manufacturing of the product or marketing of the product or delivery of the product or anything like that.
5: One, one risk factor I thought was interesting because it relates to our conversations every day was that they're exposed to tariffs. Yeah. That they have been hurt by the tariffs already in place, U.S. rates on specified products from China. See that as a risk that it could continue and have a material impact on gross margins, Mm -hmm. are the bikes Fully made in
9: China? It's the components in the bikes that are made in China, and that is what is subject to tariff, at least according to their prospectus. So it is interesting too, especially you mentioned the timing and what we've seen over the last few weeks with the volatility and how the market does seem to react and, and punish certain stocks that are more exposed to the tariffs and reward stocks that aren't as exposed to the tariffs, uh, given kind of the nature of, of the tweets and the news cycle and all of that. Um, it is interesting that Peloton, given their manufacturing in China, and that they do have some exposure uh, to in this environment.
6: I wonder if the Bulls are gonna invoke Roku as the you have a device, it's playing a big yes. trend, but really it's a Trojan horse for a subscription service, and we're gonna be a content provider thereafter.
9: Yeah, that is an interesting question as to what the exact comps will be when this company goes public, because you could invoke a Roku. They Roku, they do have the hardware, they do have the software component, which you don't see quite as frequently. Uh, but then Peloton on top of that has this whole you know fitness component to that to it. They also create their own content, uh, which is a whole you know different ballgame in terms of how you would value and assess a company. So it's, it's pretty interesting. It's also um, worth noting that the CEO, John Foley, in his letter talks all about uh, endorphins, and endorphins make people happy, kind of like the, uh, the quote from Legally Blonde.
4: Yeah, very yeah, much no, I yep.
9: Did no he No secret. Exercise
4: it? makes us feel good. It's simple science. He, yeah. he just
6: hoped you got it, I think.
9: Yeah. He, d- he did not credit Legally Blonde in that letter. Uh, but for those you know who have memorized that movie, they may have like all of us <laughs> picked up sure. on that line exactly. It's, it's
5: pretty good, uh,
9: Leslie. Thank you. As we
5: count you down to the opening bell, let's take another look at futures right now. Seen a bit of a recovery. Dow futures down fifty-two with about eleven minutes until the open. More squawk on the street live from Post Nine at the NYSE when we return.
8: visibility at indeed.com slash mad money just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed
4: all right there's a look at our futures of course you can see that we are headed for uh, what appears to be a lower open this morning Uh, we're going to get that open by the way a little less than eight minutes from now stay with us on squawking the street All right, we got a little less than five minutes before we get started with trading here at the NYSE. Let's bring in Kenny Polkari, principal with Butcher Joseph Asset Management, also a CNBC contributor. What are you watching this morning, Kenny?
10: Listen, what are you watching? I, we talked about this on Friday. The path of least resistance was lower. I'm looking at uh, uh, 28.30, really, on the S&P, which has been the lows that we've tested three times since this August correction kind of began. But I'm really looking at the 200-day on the S&P, which is at 2803 which is the number you really want to see the S&P to, uh, to, to test. You want it to see the test and hold. You don't want it to see and test and fail. But in my mind, based on everything that's gone around, the inverted yield curve, the 30-year bond now yielding less than the dividend, you know, than the S&P 500 dividend, all the geopolitical news is just going to cause uh, the market to kind of thrash around. And it needs to test lower in order to find that support. So that's what I'm looking at.
5: Wonder um, how you're reading the move in small caps, which have been hit especially hard in August. Kenny down seven and a half percent, first negative month in three, and down sharply uh, from their highs. Way more than the overall market.
10: I know that's actually confusing to me that the small caps continue. But you know, it's interesting. On the down days, they get hit harder. On the up days, they kind of outperform by a little bit. But it's more the concern about them getting hit so hard on the down days. And, and I'm as confused as anyone because, quite honestly. The small caps are typically U.S.-centric names, right? Not really exposed to the international markets, not really exposed to, the, to tariff wars and all that. And so uh, there's a little bit of, of a disconnect there between why they're getting hit. And that might suggest that the small caps are the ones that's the, you know the canary in the coal mine. Telling you that in fact the U.S. economy is going to be is, is weakening. I'm not in that camp. I still don't believe it. I think some of the macro data is continues to be stronger than than not, and so therefore I'm still believing that this is just kind of a corrective phase within the longer term cycle.
6: Kenny you mentioned 2830 or thereabouts in the S and P, or a little bit below that for the 200-day. We're talking about two to three percent of a cushion to right. the downside versus where we've traded now. We've gotten down toward that 2830 level in the s and a couple times this month. Do you take anything from the fact that the S&P is holding above its recent lows, even as Treasury yields hit new lows and the yield curve deepens into new lows? In other words, that there's not as much sensitivity in stocks or, you know, are stocks just on the edge of a cliff here? No, I think
10: I think it's the latter. Not that it's on the edge of a cliff, because I don't want to give the sense that, you know, there's going to be this crash coming. But. I do think that the S&P hasn't really recognized, you know, the broader concerns at the market. Look, The Dow has tested and and failed a couple of times, although slightly, it's 200-day. The Russell is certainly well below. The Dow Transports is well below. The Nasdaq and the S&P are the only two that have not tested to see, and so my sense is that's why I think the path of least resistance is lower still and not not right in here. I think it's going to come. I think the S&P is going to test it, but I think it's going to find support there. I'm I'm a believer that there is some support there and that the broader conversation about the geopolitics and the inverted yield curve and the coming recession is really at the moment overdone. Meaning what exactly then?
4: You think we're going to actually move
10: higher into the fall here after we get through this quiet period and people come back to work? No. So I think that I think we're going to test low. We're going to thrash around a little bit, and as we move into year end, yes, and I think the market's going to you know rebalance and move higher. I don't think it's going to be significantly higher. I'm kind of thinking around three thousand is going to be the year end target. But I think between now and then, you're going to see us test lower, thrash around a little bit, and then move as we move into uh, as we move into the uh, into the end of the year.
4: Kenny, thank you. Always
10: appreciate it. Always a pleasure.
4: Kenny Polcari joining us. Of course, uh, we got about, about less than a minute till we get to uh, to an opening bell this morning. Mike, anything you're keeping market you really waffled
6: on? all day yesterday. It was just sort of fatigued and heavy. And I do think this trading range is uh, is an issue right now. Obviously, watching the financials because if you talk about one area uh, that has not really been able to escape uh, what the yields have been doing, it is financials. It's pretty much pretty, as oversold as it's been in a long time. So if it's going to bounce, it probably should happen soon. It probably needs clearance from the US and We're not getting that
5: this morning. I mean, I mentioned small caps. Transports are another one. that had a rough day yesterday, down 3.7 percent. Also, down 16 percent from the highs. People look at that group as a sensitively
8: economic indicator.
4: And there's the opening bell here from the stock exchange uh, Over at uh, our headquarters, you can see the S&P 500 real-time exchange. Of a lower open, so it should be a bit more red on that board. Here at the big board, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics highlighting August as Kids Eat Right Month. And over at the NASDAQ, the Tennis Channel, that's owned by Sinclair Broadcast Group. Of course, the U.S. Open uh, has begun here in the uh, New York area, in Queens, actually. Um, Tiffany, we didn't get to it. We should probably hit it. Looks like it's going to be down a little less than 5% on the first trade here, Sarah. In the press release, they talked uh, uh, about continued strength in mainland China, but tough comparisons versus last year, uh, weaker demand or headwinds from demand from foreign tourists, currency exchange rate pressures and continuing business disruptions, disruptions in Hong Kong.
5: So Tiffany actually had a beat on the bottom line and that was driven by lower expenses. They cut their digital marketing costs and they cut some of their other SG&A expenses. Below that, you saw where the weakness was in sales. It was a myth. Actually, comps were much weaker than expected overall, down about 3%. The weakness was in the Americas, where we knew they were suffering from decreased tourist spending and activity, and that's certainly what they highlighted up top. They still get hurt on currency. I mean, this is as macro as it gets. So the Asia-Pacific numbers were actually down, but you did see double-digit growth in places like China, numbers in Japan were down, comps in Europe were sharply lower on softening activity. So, you know, if you're looking for a snapshot of how the luxury consumer is doing, it's not so great if you look at the Tiffany results. And this was a stock market that was already down double digits in the last few weeks into this report. The whisper numbers were worse than the consensus and they still disappointed across the board. It doesn't paint a very strong picture. If you also look at some of their subcategories, like engagement, down double digit, yeah. I uh, think and some of the other There's a lot
6: here. of kind of raw nerves that get struck with Tiffany. Another one, silver prices are up more than 25% since May. That's basically when Tiffany shares fell away as well, from about 109 down toward these levels. It's not the only thing that matters. It probably matters less today to Tiffany than it used to. It used to be kind of a big swing factor, but that's not helping. Uh, either, especially, Sarah, when you mentioned currency headwinds along with it.
5: Right. I mean, the bright spot in this report is the Chinese consumer of all things. I mean, it's it's interesting to see the lines with Costco opening in China yesterday, the consumer staples companies that I talked to that show China as the growth area, double digit growth for Nike in China. The trade war and the weakness in the Chinese economy is not hurting American companies that are exposed to the Chinese consumer. Yes, maybe heavy big-ticket items like durables and caterpillars right. and Well, they do traditionally have a
4: 70% savings rate, so they're pretty good at saving and maybe getting better, a little better at, at spending. Um, did want to take a look at Autodesk this morning uh, because it's been a, a fairly strong performer, but uh, its guidance certainly is concerning uh, some investors. Uh, let me take a couple of quotes from the uh, conference call this morning. They say they began noticing some changes in demand environments, Uh, in uh, various areas that they service towards the end of July. As such, for these affected areas, they felt it's appropriate to adjust their expectations for the remainder of the year. They say they're taking a prudent stance regarding customer spending environments in the U.K. due to Brexit, Central Europe due to a slowdown in manufacturing, and, of course, China due to trade tensions. But, uh, Mike, we should point out this is a company that changed its business model uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and is still going to put up revenue growth of about twenty seven percent for the year, uh, but is adjusting that fiscal 2020 guidance slightly down?
6: Yeah, and I think you know it probably got caught up in this huge up move in software in general, and so pretty much any software name was uh, was carried higher. Business mix and business model a little bit different than a lot of the typical, you know, uh, cloud software, kind of pure enterprise software uh, players. So maybe it's that's
5: used by the architects. Yeah. So it's a little more geared
6: toward, you know, real world physical stuff that's getting built or not. But right, it may be a focus.
4: reflection to a certain extent of what we've discussed here exactly. is Pull pullback in terms of spending right. or and or the willingness to invest right now. Uh, across the board, and they're seeing it, it would seem, in some of their key markets, though not here in the U.S.
6: Yeah, so it's not just riding a secular trend of business productivity. It's obviously linked to other things in the economy.
5: No, it was uh, was an outperformer. It was up almost 20% for the year going into today, obviously losing a big chunk of that. But the CEO is going to be on Squawk Alley, so we'll talk to him about consumer appetite or client appetite. And what it says, you know, on the flip side, HPE, Mm -hmm. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, did raise its full-year guidance. So uh, kind of mixed signals from this... You know, enterprise spending, client skittishness around trade and macro concerns. I think that one was seen as actually a relief. I mean, revenue did slide seven percent year over year because we know the business underlying has been pretty soft, where several of the key products declined, like servers down twelve percent, storage hardware five percent. But uh, overall, was taken as a good sign by Wall Street the stock is up 5% I mean, it's 48
6: million in free cash flow under but. 8 times earnings right yeah. this is a you know sort of deep valued old old legacy tech type stock so as you say relief is uh, is probably the word here because it has been you're going to get a, a little
4: a decent snapshot uh, of of the economy because uh, the ceo that's of hp is also not. joining you're on the 11 today so you'll squawk be able Gally, to, yeah. yeah squawk alley sorry we call it the 11 world calls it Squawk Alley, as they should. But you'll be able to get a decent <laughs> snapshot given an Autodesk and HP. You won't want to miss those those two interviews.
5: Well, and also cautious comments earlier in the season from Cisco and NetApp and Intel. And how do you balance that with a quarter like we saw last week from Salesforce, which was remarkably strong? It's, what What is the appetite right now for enterprise software spending and for enterprise spending in general, given some of the headwinds? It, it's such a mixed picture. You know, you look at the business side of things. Look at the consumer. I mean, I was going through the internals of consumer confidence numbers yesterday. The current expectations index yes. of, of how you know Americans are feeling about their situations right now—the I mean, highest level in like 19 years. So balance that with some of the weaker signs, and, and it is a And there's a big picture. spread
6: between that and what people say about the outlook. So it's very widespread. There was actually a nice chart about that in the closing bell yesterday, Sarah, that you, uh,
2: oh, you say? Was, yeah. it, was it during was the like Santoli a uh... <laughs> jab?
6: Yeah. Uh, guys, uh, market is uh, taking a little bit of a leg lower. You have the 10-year below 145, um, or just at 145 just right that. now. So I think that's still the same dynamic, even though the stocks have tried to— kind of loosen that connection to a degree and lengthen that leash hasn't been fully successful.
4: I did want to come back to yesterday's big story in my world, of course, uh, and just a big story in general, the talks between Philip Morris International uh, and Altria, which essentially is Philip Morris here in the U.S., but it's called Altria. Um, Altria is a smaller company. Yesterday, we got news of talks of an all-stock merger of equals. The market started to react to that by sending the shares of Altry a higher and Philip Morris International, lower on the expectation it would be roughly a 50-50 split in the economics. Once we were able, or once I was able to get off air, actually make some calls, we were able to tell you that's not the case. They may be describing it as a merger of equals, but the fact is, when it comes to the economics, it's not. They're basing it on the respective market caps of the company prior to the move in either stock before we started to at least hear some potential rumors of uh, of said deal. And so then you watched Altria shares plunge yesterday. Philip Morris also down. By the way, they do need a shareholder vote on both sides of this. This morning, Philip Morris International shares, as you see, rebounding just a bit, but Altria continues down. This is a a no premium, what they're calling merger of equals, because they will have split boards and split management, and they're still working through that. As I reported yesterday, perhaps as soon as a couple of weeks, uh, we will get a deal announcement. There did seem to be good momentum behind it. They've been talking, I was told, through the early part of the summer and picking up as that moved along. But the question, Sarah, is, is this going to be a company that together is going to be able to spend more on R&D, spend more on innovation? and compete in what, or I should say, innovate in what is a rapidly changing market given people are not expected or are expected to stop smoking the traditional way in greater and greater numbers.
5: Well, yeah, consumers are shifting to va- to vaping and e-cigarettes. That's where the future is. And and the cigarette sales are declining even further. There was also that big deal between Bats and Reynolds American, which sort of changed the landscape and made made some bigger competition. I just wonder if the thirteen billion that was wiped off the market caps of the combined companies yesterday made a difference in terms of derailing those talks it, it, that were publicly revealed. I don't
4: know that I don't believe it made a difference in derailing it. Um, they could have perhaps handled I'm not quite sure, you know, in terms of it getting out and, and, and letting the market understand what they were doing. But you do need a shareholder vote and there you know, maybe there's gonna be some question if this trend continues. Not the greatest way to at least have your first day of trading when people are at least understanding publicly what it is you're trying to do. And then there's
5: also this first of all there's there's US regulation questions about whether this deal kinda of would be approved. There's always litigation around this industry. And then there's this sticking point where, so Altria owns 35% of Juul. Yes. Right. That's the popular. $12.8 billion
4: deal early this year. Fascinating deal because they had no control whatsoever, no path to control either, which I thought was interesting given the premium they were paying. But
5: they were also in that deal agreed to not distribute any other e-vapor products. And Philip Morris owns Icos. And I guess it's a it's a. It's, heat, not it's, a heating, con-
4: it's a he- They heat the tobacco, it not burn, burn it. Tobacco.
5: Right. So I wonder if that is is allowed. Within that but I believe it is because they're is...
4: talking about rolling it out here and globally, obviously, as Philip Morris already That's planned. the future
5: products. That's the that's key, right? These it are...
4: is. They spent $6 billion on that. But the thinking behind the deal is that they're going to need to spend a lot more yeah. money on the I next mean, generation. To the me, next that's generation. The mismatch
6: in terms of shareholder base, what they're there for, which is cash cow, dividend yield, just harvest this whatever declining business we have. And now you put these companies together, even though the industrial logic, so to speak, is really... Compelling. Everyone would probably agree. It doesn't necessarily make sense to have two uh, kind of separate public companies, different parts of the world. Now it's about investing. It's it's almost like you know legacy media. Yeah, sure. You got to invest a ton, but you're not guaranteed anything on the other end.
4: Right. I mean, listen. There is some somewhat analogous to CBS and Viacom. Given the two companies were together, were separated, and now we're coming back together, conceivably, uh, in order to in order to have more scale in a rapidly changing. Now the core
6: product is not bad for your health in as clear a way for media as it is in smoking. So there you go. It's not like the overall, you know, world of consuming entertainment is that going is... away. No, it's not. So,
4: But people are doing it in different ways. That's a benefit ways. for CBS Viac. Yeah, they're vaping their media these days. <laughs> All right, Bob pisani has got more on what's moving this morning as well. Let's join him. Bob.
3: And uh, generally on the downside, and again, trade wars, economic uncertainty weighing on us, as well as, of course, that inverted yield curve that we're seeing. Take a look at the global markets. Uh, we're slowly getting out of August, so it's good to remind everybody. Generally down, small move up in the Shanghai. Essentially, everybody's down 3 to 4%. It's remarkable in August how consistently down the global markets are. We are down Three or four percent. Shanghai, Japan, Germany, Spain, it doesn't matter. Everything's down three to four percent, essentially. Sectors today, well, of course, we talked about the defensive dominance uh, this quarter, this uh, month with utilities and REITs up. Consumer staples, flat, uh, essentially flat, and all those cyclicals to the downside. So again, today, defensive, utilities and REITs up. Energy rather oddly up today, but oil is up. Oil is held steady in the mid-50s, yet oil stocks continue to drop in the last couple weeks. That's not a good sign particularly. Banks are flattish. Uh, Semi's a good global proxy for growth on the downside. Cyclicals in August, we've emphasized the fact that the banks and the industrials and energy generally have all down. There's your big underperformers and, of course, uh, REITs, uh, consumer staples, utilities, generally to the upside uh, overall. Uh, Sarah was talking about Tiffany. It's just important to point out. Uh, how important the United States, the Americas are. It's it's about 40% of their sales. So their comp store numbers were down 4%. That was well below the estimates of down 2%. Japan's maybe 15% of their global revenues, down 3% there. Estimate was going to be the upside Europe down 2%. That's another maybe 10-12% of their revenues. So you see, generally disappointed across the board, but America's is really the important one. And if you look at Tiffany's, here's another sort of proxy for the trade wars. Tiffany's had a big move to the upside, March and April, on hopes that this whole thing was kind of going to resolve itself somehow. And the minute we saw increased trade war headlines, Tiffany fell apart. So good proxy here uh, for the trade wars and what's, uh, what's going on globally. And you see Tiffany's essentially flat, maybe up about 2% uh, for the year right now. Uh, In terms of trade wars and political uncertainty going into September, there is a bull market argument that can be made. J.P. Morgan tried this yesterday. Basically, the, the bull market playbook is based on more stable economic data, not just in the United States, and we've had it recently, but over in Europe in particular And China, that's a big, big call right now. It's more central bank easing, of course. Uh, And the most important thing is, I think, flattish earnings for Q3. And so far, that is what we are seeing. We are seeing some of the industrials and the materials move down a bit. That's not a big surprise. But there has not been a wholesale rush by corporate America to dramatically lower the numbers. And that's not surprising. You don't have that unless there was expectations in Q20 that you might be going into some kind of recession. So flattish is the word we have been using for months now that so far is still maintaining for Q3, and this is going to be the the, the key to how September acts overall. Right now, we're sitting right near the lows for the day, down about 100 points in the Dow. David, back to you.
4: Yeah, it's that 10-year yield that's just shocking. Bob, thank you. Uh, Speaking of yields, let's head to the bond. Pittsburgh Santelli joins us from the CME Group in Chicago. Rick,
11: Good morning, David. You know, it's guns hot in Treasuries the last several sessions. Everything but two-year note yields, which are hovering at 149, their cycle low uh, is 147 on a closing yield basis. Everything else guns hot. You'll see what I mean. Look at a two-day of fives. Well, you can see we're lower in yield than we were yesterday. Yesterday's close was a cycle low. 30-year bonds, they're down five basis points. The previous cycle low was 197. We shot under that yesterday by two. We're down another four or five. We've seen a lot of movement in what's known as the knob notes over bond spread as it continues to narrow, and that is reflected in just these big moves, 30-year bond trying to catch up in many ways. I left the 10-year out for reason. It's also guns hot. It's currently trading what would be a fresh uh, low yield for close for this move. Matter of fact, it takes us all the way back to July of 2016 as this chart shows. And what's interesting is here we are at 145. You lop off basically another 10 basis points. We're challenging the double bottoms of July 2012 and 2016, which are the all-time lows, right around 136. Boons. You know, boons were diverging, and I'm talking just a little bit lately, as Treasury yields continue to plummet. It's not only uh, people nervous about a recession, uh, at least as evidenced by signals that used to work regarding inversions, but that also prompts speculation. And it really has fueled a m- almost leadership role as of late for U.S. Treasuries. And I'll also point out another issue, and that, of course, is this notion of Banks is the transmission. We learned that in a crisis. Well, how are banks doing as we see more negative rates? We see the ECB getting ready for more stimulus. And that, of course, is being led in this cycle of central bank activity, CNBC talks about. Look at one week of the dollar index. It has continued to accelerate and remain very close to 27-month highs. And finally, the dollar versus yuan, dollar continues to track higher, as you see there, going back to very early 2008. Mike, back to you.
6: Rick, thank you very much. Uh, Let's get some more on today's movers uh, in the opening half hour. Let's go to Frank Holland at the NASDAQ. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning, Mike. You know, the NASDAQ coming off its third negative session in the past four. That trend continuing
1: so far in the early part of the day. Costco with the biggest positive impact on the NASDAQ 100 following that huge opening in China yesterday. Monster Beverage Share is also trading higher following it being named a top pick by Credit Suisse. Fox B shares performing well. Fox Class A shares, they're negative right now. Also, a trio trio of pharma stocks, Insight, Amgen, and Regeneron, all doing well so far. On the other side, Autodesk shares plunging on trade war concerns and some weak outlook from their earnings yesterday. Also, a difficult start for tech. Intuit, Broadcom, and Microsoft all off, trading lower so far. Back over to you, Sarah.
5: All right, Frank, thank you very much. Just uh, something, a head, uh, headline here hitting the wires as it relates to trade. The U.S. trade rep, the office and the administration that carries out the president's trade orders, does confirm it will publish Friday that 10 to 15 percent tariff on the remaining $300 billion worth of Chinese imports coming into this country. It will go into effect September 1st and December 15th. So we're going to get the breakdown of that list. Remember, President Trump increased that rate from 10 to 15% last Friday. Also, interestingly, the U.S. trade rep has slowed the 25% going to 30%, which is also what the president announced for October 1st on the prior $250 billion worth of imports. They're going to hold hearings on that to talk about the impact of that. So confirming a big part of what the president announced and what shook up the market last week, which was... Ten to fifteen percent on the remaining three hundred billion. Right, going into and we're not
4: at ten yet. We should point out, right? No, this is right. the consumer is side. So at the end of the year, we will have fifteen percent on three hundred billion, and at least twenty-five percent on two hundred and fifty billion. Per. All imports from China, obviously, will be
5: under tariff. Good, good way to summarize it there. Yeah, coming Thanks. up, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, bucking today's market downtrend, shares rising in reaction to the company's quarterly results. We're going to talk to the CEO. We're Squawk on the Street, live from Post 9, Dow's down 30, when we come right back. The move in bonds has been front and center for investors, just to show you how dramatic it has been so far this year. I mean, the great rush into bonds has sent yields plunging. We're looking at the lowest yields since back in July 2016. We did close below 140 then, and then we'd be in record low territory. We'll be right back here from Spock on the Street.
4: Well, it is a tale of two economies, which for years favored the top, but it's now flipping. Let's get more on this from
12: Robert Frank. He's at Headquarters. Robert. Good morning, David. Well, for most of the past decade, the wealthy consumer was the strongest and the working class lagged behind. Now... The economy has flipped. The high-end segments on real estate, retail, art, and cars are all the weakest, and the Walmart economy is the main driver of U.S. growth. Luxury real estate having its worst year since the financial crisis. Sales of homes priced at $1.5 million or more, falling by 5% in the second quarter. There is now a three-year supply of mansions and luxury homes in Aspen, the Hamptons, Miami, and other markets. Retailers to the 1% are falling behind the mass retailers like Walmart, Costco, and Target. Barney's, of course, filing for bankruptcy earlier this month. Nordstrom's posting three straight quarters of declines, and Neiman Markets seeing its first sales drop in seven years. Now, art auctions are down between 10 and 20 percent this year. And at the annual Pebble Beach car auctions this month, more than half of the cars priced at 1 million or more failed to sell, while cars priced at under $75,000, those sold for far more than the estimates. Now, spending by the 1 percent is now below. 2017 level so it's fallen during those two years and the share of total national spending by the top 10 percent that is falling but the middle-class consumers they are picking up that slack the top 10 percent still account for nearly half of all consumer outlays so as Mark Zandi of Moody's writes if high-income consumers pull back any further on their spending it will be a significant threat to the economic expansion. And David, you and Sarah having that terrific discussion about Tiffany, which again falls in line with this, where although uh, China was strong, U.S. sales were weaker. Guys, back to you.
4: That's, that is right. Uh, Robert, thank you. Thank Interesting you story there. Robert Frank.
3: You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street